Hey everyone, GPS 220. This is Monday morning recording uh, your lecture for today, Midnight Chernobyl. Um, so we're going to start by looking at the syllabus. So today is November 9th. We're going to go over chapters 5 and 6. That's what we'll do today. One little change I want to make is November 30th and December 2nd. So what we're going to do is we're going to make November 30th uh, the due date for your in-class essay. It's not actually in-class, but you're, actually it's an out-of-class essay. I will give you some more information about that as we get closer. But what that means is we're just going to flip-flop the 30th and the 2nd. We will finish up the book, chapters 18 and 19, on the 2nd, and then do a little bit of review exam. None, uh, nothing else really changes. Um, I may want to double-check the December 14th for the final exam, but that, that may be actually right. I just It seems awful late, but I'll double-check that. But long story short, the 30th and the 2nd, we're just flip-flopping those days. Uh, in-class essay on the 30th, sorry, I said that again, out-of-class essay on the 30th, you'll just submit it by Canvas, and then the second, we'll finish up the book uh, there. So if you're looking along, or if you're following along, we're kind of right here. Uh, we're, we're almost there, guys. Um, we're working through, by the time we get almost done with the book, we'll have our last day of in-person, and of course, we go to the online sections. Okay. Um, I'm going to post a uh, a video clip I want you to watch for later, so just be on the lookout for that. Um, that goes along with our lesson for today. There we go. All right. So we're going to read from the text some today, right here. Um, so if you can have it available, that would be fantastic. Your exams, I'm working on them, um, and I hope to have them finished by, by tonight. All right. The night of the explosion, an unfinished test. Um, so we're going to go into more detail, uh, more of a deep dive into why the reactors exploded, or why the reactor, I guess, uh, exploded. Again, I want to make the caveat that I'm not a nuclear physicist. I, I don't understand nuclear fission the way uh, you know a physicist or a chemist might. Uh, but I will give you some some basic ideas of, of how that took place, and then in the video clip you're going to watch, um, you'll you'll have more of a, a blow by blow of how that uh, how that all took place. Um, this book, as I've told you before, was the basis for the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. If I haven't told you that, I apologize. If you or your family member or someone has access to HBO or HBO Max and you can watch Chernobyl, um, I strongly strongly advise you to watch it. You know, it, it might help you with reading the book. I mean, that, that's possible, but it, I'm just telling you about this because it's just such a, a wonderful, wonderful um, television series. It won the uh, the Emmy for Best uh, Drama, I think, two years ago, and it's just, it's a really, really remarkable feat of television. So anyway, if you have access to HBO Max or HBO, by all means, look up Chernobyl. Uh, you won't regret it. All right. What happened leading up to the explosion of Reactor 4? An unfinished test. So basically there was uh, a, a, a safety test that needed to be conducted in order for basically to, to check off, you know, a, a yearly, bi-yearly kind of maintenance uh, issue. And they kept kicking the can down the road, basically. So on this night, and let's get the, the night, April, April 26th, on the night of April 26th, well, I guess the previous day was April 25th, but on the night of April 26th, they decide to, to, to do this test. 
And really the test was to check a safety mechanism where if the um, reactor lost power, basically how it would react, like would the emergency systems take over? So in the event of a blackout, would this work properly? And time was of the essence, as I said, because uh, the test had been pushed back several times before. Not only that, but there were inspectors there from Donetsk. uh, So basically think of like an auditor, right? They're auditing the test to make sure that everyone is doing what they're supposed to do, who had threatened to leave if they didn't get the test done. So the test had been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. It needed to get done. And even though people were exhausted and had worked, you know, shift after shift in a row, uh, they wanted to get it done that night. And really all it did, really all the test was about, I mean, I say really, it's a lot more complicated than I'm letting on, but it involves slowly powering down the reactor without compromising the nuclear reactions. And the key word there, key, the key words there are slowly and um, compromising, right? Because that's essentially what um, was uh, supposed to happen. In the video clips that, that I'll give you after the, the lecture, you'll see in more detail like what that process kind of mechanically looks like in one of the video clips. And then you'll see a more dramatized from the from the TV series Chernobyl, a more dramatized account of those events as well. All right, let's talk about Anatoly Dilatov, um, or Dyatlov, excuse me. Um, to make a very long story short, and just to, to not to pull any punches, Dyatlov is, is essentially blamed for the Chernobyl disaster. Um, there are others as well that will stand trial, but it's Dyatlov that is at the front and center of the um, explosion and the fallout, both literal and figurative, of the Chernobyl disaster. Dyatlov was a deputy chief engineer of the plant, and he was responsible for coordinating the test that night. So think of it this way. He was the head honcho at the plant that night. Um, as is well documented now and as is uh, demonstrated in the television series, a very prickly personality, hard to deal with, hard, hard to deal with cursed all the time, curses employees, you know, really was borderline ab- uh, abusive with coworkers and with his, his, with his underlings. And he likely, uh, his decisions likely pushed the test beyond its breaking point. Uh, Toptanov, who we've already talked about before, and Alexander Akimov manned the board that night. So they were the ones physically responsible with moving the control rods around in the reactor. And it was Dyatlov that was giving the instruction. So Dyatlov's in charge, and then Toptanov and Akimov were the ones responsible for, you know, pushing the buttons, pulling the levers that would adjust those rods to begin that cool down process uh, to test the backup system. In doing so, however, um, they greatly destabilized the reactor. They forced the shutdown so quickly that it jeopardized the integrity of the reactions. So instead of a slow cool down, which was what was intended, uh, they they pushed it to the edge, essentially, at the direction of Dyatlov, um, so much so that eventually what happened is, well, we'll see. Turn to page 86, and we'll begin reading there. Akimov lifted a transparent plastic cover over the control panel. Toptanov pushed his finger through the paper seal and pressed the circular red button beneath. After exactly 36 seconds, the test was over. The reactor had been shut down, Toptanov said. High above them in the the reactor hall, the rod's electric servo motors whirred. The glowing displays of the 211 Selsun motors on the wall showed their slow descent into the reactor. One meters, two meters. Inside the core, what happened next took place so fast 
that it outstripped the recording capacity of the reactor instrumentation. For one scant second, as the boron carbide-filled upper sections of the rods entered the top of the reactor, overall reactivity fell, just as it was supposed to. But then, the graphite tips began to displace the water in the lower part of the core, adding to the positive void effect, generating steam and more reactivity. A local critical mass formed in the bottom of the reactor. After two seconds, the chain reaction began to increase and at an unstoppable speed, blooming upward and outward through the core. All right, let me continue on to page 87. As the fuel channels failed, water circulation through the core ceased entirely. The check valves on the massive main circulation pumps closed, and all the remaining water trapped in the core flashed into steam. A neutron pulse surged through the dyne reactor, and thermal power peaked at more than 12 billion watts. Steam pressures inside the sealed reactor space rose exponentially, eight atmospheres in a second, leaving a heaving Elena, the 2,000-ton concrete and steel upper bio biological shield, clear of its mountings and shearing the remaining pressure tubes at their welds. Okay, I'm going to read that again. A 2,000-ton concrete biological shield heaved from its moors. The pressure shields obliterated from their welds. The temperature inside the reactor rose to 4,650 degrees centigrade, not quite as hot as the surface of the sun. And then to continue on, page 88. At 1.24 a.m., there was a tremendous roar, probably caused as a mixture of hydrogen and oxygen that had formed inside the reactor space suddenly ignited. The entire building shuddered as reactor number four was torn apart by a catastrophic explosion equivalent to as much as 60 tons of TNT. The blast caromed off the walls of the reactor vessel, tore open the hundreds of pipes of steam and water circuit, and tossed the upper biological shield in the air like a flipped coin. Skip down to the second paragraph. In that moment, the core of the reactor was completely destroyed. Now, I want you to listen to this, these next uh, few descriptions of, of the seriousness of the radioactivity that would be created, or released, I should say. Almost seven tons of uranium fuel, together with pieces of control rods, zirconium channels, and graphite blocks, were pulverized into tiny fragments and sucked into the atmosphere, forming a mixture of gases and aerosols carrying radioisotopes, including iodine-131, neptunium-239, cesium-137, strontium-90, and plutonium-239, among the most dangerous substances known to man. A further 25 to 30 tons of uranium and highly, highly radioactive graphite were launched out of the core and scattered around Unit 4, starting small blazes where they fell. Exposed to the air, 1,300 tons of incandescent graphite rubble remained in the reactor core, caught fire immediately. Let's take a break. When we return, we'll talk about the role played by first responders. Let's work our way now to the next chapter, chapter six, I guess it is. Page, yep, chapter six, page 91. 
Um, let's talk for a second about the role of first responders. Um, if you're familiar with with 9/11, and you have, you should have some some passing familiarity with it. Um, first responders, uh, firefighters especially, were some of the first on the scene at the World Trade Center. Um, additionally, those first responders were many of the first people to lose their lives outside of the people directly impacted by the terrorist activities on the planes and, and in the buildings those days. They're called first responders for a reason, right? Because they respond to the scene of, of disasters, of accidents, of, of spills, of, you know, of problems. Um, and essentially what we have here, that they're called the paramilitary uh, fire brigade, but essentially they, they are firefighters. Um, they are firefighters with the equipment used to fight fires. They were not trained firefighters with the abilities or the, uh, the capacities to deal with the nuclear fallout, which our text says was something like 40 times greater than what happened at Hiroshima. So these first responders get to the scene thinking they're fighting a fire and instead they're fighting nuclear fallout. Let's turn to page 102 and just read uh, about some of these. Again, if you watch the, the, the series, um, it goes into great detail about these firefighters and what they experienced. Um, almost all of them uh, suffered radiation poisoning and many of them died within weeks to months after this exposure. Um, they just did not know uh, what they were getting themselves into the night of that of that uh, fateful call to reactor four. Page 102. In the darkness around their feet were hundreds of sources of lethal ionizing radiation, lumps of graphite, fragments of fuel assemblies, and pellets of reactors, uranium dioxide fuel itself, scattered across the rooftops and emitting fields of gamma rays, reaching thousands of rotengen an hour. Now, the, the rotengen that we've, we haven't discussed it yet, but basically this is in the prologue. This is the thing that, um, that is being measured with, uh, for the, the amount of radioactivity in the atmosphere. So uh, as the um, uh, rotengen is, is measured, it will increase and increase and increase as the, the, uh, the availability of radioactivity energy is in the atmosphere. Yet Pravik and the others were driven on by a more tangible threat. The fires on the roof of Unit 3, directly above the reactor. A breeze was blowing from the west, threatening to spread any one of the small blazes downwind toward reactors 2 and 1, both of which were still running. If these fires weren't brought under control, the entire station would soon be engulfed in disaster. Pravik moved quickly. Together with Kibonik, Kibonok, sorry, and his men, they brought horse, uh, hoses to the roof. Pravik ordered his pump trucks connected to the dry standpipes designed to distribute water to the heights of the building though uh, through the plant's fire suppression system. When the pumps were turned on, air whistled through the hoses. Give me some pressure, Pravik yelled on the radio. It was no use. The standpipes had been smashed in the explosion. So imagine you're trying to fight a fire and you do not have uh, not only the available equipment, uh, but actual source of water to do so. Let's turn to page 110 now. I know it's the very end of the chapter, but I just want to give you the scale for how um, serious uh, the number of, of first responders were there on the scene that night. By 6.38 a.m. on Saturday, this is the same morning of the explosion, 37 fire crews, 186 firemen and 81 engines had been summoned to Chernobyl from all over the Kiev region. 
Together, they had managed to extinguish all the visible fires around the buildings of reactor number four. The deputy fire chief for the Kiev district declared the emergency over. And yet from inside the remains of the reactor buildings, wisps of black smoke and something that looked like steam continued to twist upward, drifting away slowly into the bright spring sky. Picking his way through the fallen debris to the end of the uh, uh, derator uh, corridor, Senior Unit Engineer Boris Stolyarchik leaned out through one of the shattered windows of the reserve control room and craned his neck to look down. Dawn had broken. The light was crisp and clear. What Stolyarchik saw did not frighten him, but he was struck by one thought. I'm so young, and it's all over. Reactor number four was gone. In its place was a simmering volcano of uranium fuel and graphite, a radioactive blaze that would prove all but impossible to extinguish. All right. So in these first moments of disaster, there's no understanding of the health issues uh, related to radiation. Um, one of the first things that happens is people begin to taste metal. That's one of the things that you will, um, that you read in this chapter. Uh, one of the second things that happens is people begin to get nauseous, a lot of vomiting, passing out, weakness. Um, and then uh, the third thing that you'll see is uh, essentially these kind of lesions that will begin to, to come up on the skin or a reddening of the face. Um, and in time, what essentially the radiation will do is basically just eat away at your body, at your skin, at your organs um, until there's nothing left for it to, to work on. It's a really, uh, it's a deeply sad, uh, but also painful, painful, painful way um, to die. And there's there's virtually nothing the doctors could have done uh, for for these uh, firefighters. All right. Again, we're reading this book because we want to know more about politics. Well, government secrets are at it again. Anyone that worked in that plant knew the seriousness of what was happening. Now, they might not be able to tell you the exact level of radiation, and maybe they were themselves naive about how serious this was at this time. But many within the plant knew that they had to warn people that there was a radioactive incident. They had to give people time to you know, make a decision, to stay inside their house, to keep their kids home from school, to shut the schools, to close the shops, to basically quarantine people away from this threat. Page 105, Viktor Petrovich, he said, we need to make an announcement, All right? Now the announcement, uh, is to uh, tell Brukhanov, um, or the, sorry, the, the advice is for Brukhanov to make this announcement so people can make some decisions about what they want to do, whether they just want to quarantine or whether they want to get out of town. Um, that's a decision that, that, they, that they get to make. But the director told him to wait. He wanted more time to think. And subsequently, every, every minute, every second, the amount of radioactivity was just going to go up exponentially. Again, page 106. We need to let people know. Let's look at the second paragraph. Vorobayev drove back to the bunker and reported to Brokhanov the most conservative regional dosometry estimate. The station was now surrounded by the very high fields of radiation of up to 200 RH. And the machine's broken at this point, so two, it doesn't go past 200, all right? It's actually in the thousands. They just don't know that yet. It was essential, he said, to warn the people of Pripyat about what had happened. 
We need to tell people that there's been a radiation accident and that they should take per- protective measures, close the windows and stay outside, uh, stay inside, Vorobayev told the director. But still, Brokhanov stalled. He said he would wait uh, for Karab... Sorry. Karabyat... Karabinikov. Karabnikov. Karabnikov, head of the plant's radiation safety team, to make his own assessment. At 3 a.m., Brukhanov called the party boss in Moscow and the Ministry of Internal, Internal Affairs in Kiev with a situation report. He described an explosion and a partial collapse of the turbine hall roof. The radiation situation, he said, was being clarified. It was another hour before the chief of radiation safety arrived. All this time, radiation is just spilling into the atmosphere all around the um, the area. And in fact, if you look... Um, if you turn to page, where is it here? Oh, I guess it's not in this book. I may share this with you at, at another moment, but but essentially, oh, I did. I shared it with you on the first day, that first map that showed you essentially how the radiation was spreading. It was going north into Belarus quickly, uh, and it didn't take long, right? Uh, within a few hours, um, if, sorry, within a few days, if not a few hours, uh, Sweden is already beginning to pick up. Um, radio, you know, nuclear elements in the atmosphere. So, all right, let's take, uh, uh, let's stop here. I'm going to link two videos I'd like you to watch. One is just a technical explanation of how the reactor exploded. And the second is a dramatized account of how it exploded. And that again is from the miniseries Chernobyl. I'll talk to you all again on Wednesday. And just uh, again, two, two reminders, um, uh, working on your exams tonight. And then secondly, uh, November 30th is that in-class essay. And I'll let, I'll let you know plenty of time, give you lots of reminders about that as well. Thanks.